Okay, I learned something about other Christians besides those at Grace Bible Church. Now, I love y'all. Almost every one of you. No, I mean, all. I really do love y'all, but I've learned something about other Christians. When you tell other Christians they need to sign up, other Christians sign up quickly. Whereas at Grace, you wait to the very, very last minute, and when someone puts a gun to your head, then you consider it. And let me tell you how I learned this. In 2020, Charlie Dyer in his church in um, Arizona and an old classmate of mine, Gary DeSalvo from Temple Bible Church, our t- three of us are putting together a Journeys of Paul trip. We're going to have this three-masted sail ship in the Aegean Sea and take people to Athens and Corinth and, and all these cool places, Istanbul and, you know, other places too. And they announced it this week and I didn't even get around to announcing it because it's a way off, right? Forty people have already signed up. I've got, a, I've got an Israel trip April 30, and I still don't have 40 people signed up because, you know, it's grace. I mean, I don't know. I've had people walk up and say, when's that Israel trip? I really want to go. I'm thinking, really? So, I am hereby putting you on notice that on April 30 of this year, we're taking probably my last group to Israel with Charlie Dyer. We're going to take one bus and it, I really believe, will be an incredible trip. We're at changing this one from previous ones. We're going to do the Temple Mount and some other things. And if you want to sign up for that, please sign up because they are threatening to start opening the floodgates to other people outside of Grace, which could fill it up. So it's on the church website under events. And then secondly, I will send out an email with a link this week to the trips of Paul because if we don't hurry, there's not going to be room on it. Um, because Charlie's and Gary's people are going crazy, and it's, it's June 4th, 2020, and I will send a link out, because I hadn't even posted it, because I'm still trying to fill Israel, for crying out loud. Um, but at any rate, that's quick. It's not a big deal. Just wanted to let you know. We are in a series on prayer, and, and we're, on a series in, we're in a series on prayer because I think it's the great weakness of the evangelical church. I think we in the Bible church especially love studying the Bible. We just jones on the Bible. But then, gosh, we're awfully busy to pray, you know? And, and so it's my hope and prayer that this time together as we've discussed this subject has been beneficial. We started with praise because it's my conviction that we need to remind ourselves of the character of God when we pray. Because it is His love and His power and His grace that causes Him to be someone that we would go to in prayer. And, and the greater we become aware of His power and all of His perfection, His beauty, His attributes, then the more naturally the rest of prayer makes sense. And then secondly, we looked at confession because if we consider who He is, then we must also consider who we are. And Scripture says we are a mess. That's a translation of the Greek term. We are broken, we are sinful, and we desperately need what God only can do. And and until we understand our limitations, we don't really need Him. That's why pride is so insidious, because it convinces us that we don't need God. It causes us to take it upon ourselves to handle our issues because, you know, we're pretty good, right? I mean, we're a lot better than those other people. So confession is, is putting, just as putting God's character into context, confession puts our character in the context of God. 
And then last week was Thanksgiving, and I did not do a very good job on Thanksgiving because I am not adequate to tell you how strongly I believe that it is the great missing element among the American church today. We have become spoiled, rotten. We are blessed in ways that are incomprehensible to the rest of the world, to our forefathers, and yet we whine and complain and fail to thank God for all the things He's done. We can make list after list after list of all the ways He hadn't blessed us, and we neglect to count our blessings. We, we, we're not a grateful people. And, and, and that lack of gratitude causes us to see all of life in the wrong way. Because no matter how much God blesses us, we got a list of things He needs to do today. And because we have that list, we don't have the joy that comes from gratitude. Joy always is effusive to the heart that sees all that God has done. And it is to our shame that we are not a thankful people. It is to our absolute shame that we as a people don't stand before God in awe of all He's done for us. But that's last week's sermon. Today I want to look at the issue of what we theologically, historically called petition, asking God for things. Today we're going to talk about asking God for ourselves. Next week we'll talk about praying on behalf of other people, two sides of petition. And there's problems with that. I had someone come up after the first service and say, I don't ask God for things for me because, you know, it, it just seems selfish. I said, well, your problem's not with me, it's with the Bible. Because the prayers of Scripture are loaded, chock full of requests on behalf of the penitent, the prayer. The reality is we are commanded to ask. And whether we think he cares or not, we have a responsibility to seek him with all of those things. Now, I understand that one of the reasons we grow dull with asking is because most of us have been disappointed. Most of us in life, we started out as children and as childhood believers, new believers, we had this simple faith, and we asked God and believed God, and He answered, and it was so cool. And then for most of us, there was that monumental time in our lives when we prayed for something, and we heard crickets. We saw nothing. And it, it shook many of us to the very core of our faith because that caused us to question either our ability to be heard or his desire to listen. And so many of us no longer feel the urgency to ask God. In fact, it seems selfish. So I want us to look at what the Bible says about going to God in prayer. First, let's look at the promise. In the book of Matthew, chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's most remarkable sermon, book after book have been written on this sermon. We will never grasp the power of it, the meaning of it. By the way, uh, it just made me think, we do have more prayer books from the Psalms that were given by one of our members. They're on the visitor's table. If you weren't here last week and didn't get one, there are a few more. Oh, they 
They already went? No, not the prayer guide. We, we ran out of those because the printer wanted to charge us five times as much for the second printing. So we put it online and said, praise Jesus. But the book that, that uh, it takes you through praying through the Psalms uh, by uh, Patterson is available on the table. If you didn't get one, there's one per family. Don't grab them all to give us Christmas gifts, okay? Matthew chapter 7, one of the most famous passages in the Sermon on the Mount. Ask, verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. How many of us had childhood songs we sang in Sunday school about this? And we believed it. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Isn't it cool to be a kid? Faith is just so simple. If, if God tells you, then you believe it, and that's that. I mean, it's just, it's so much fun as a child to see that simple faith and dependence. And a new believer as well. I have sat and listened to brand new believers pray for things and think, oh, I'm so humbled by their faith. It's just so crystal clear and clean. It's, what it, it's Jesus himself says it. Ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open for you because everyone asks, seeks, and knocks gets what they're hoping for. It says that. And then he goes on and he loads it up theologically. First of all, he says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Luke says, gives him a scorpion. If you then, though you're evil, because remember, we've already confessed. If you, even though you're evil, self-centered, limited in your ability, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? See, He hits us in the solar plexus, spiritually speaking, because He said, now, many of you don't ask anymore as if you can't really trust God to care that much, but you love your kids that way. And if you love, are you really saying that you love your kids more than God loves you? Is that really what you want to say? You want to say that out loud? Really? So much fun to new, have new parents in the family. You know, both of our daughters have children now, and, and, and it's so much fun to watch them do what we did, and that is act as though we invented child, parenthood. You know what I mean? The first child you have, it, you really do kind of act like you invented it, and, and you kind of have this attitude. I mean, my sons and all both told me how to hold a child, how to feed a child, how to change a diaper, and I'm thinking, you know, I got living evidence that I've done this successfully. <laughs> but it, it's just what first parents do, because when you discover the way you love a child, it is beyond comprehension, right? Uh, when, uh, I mean, when... And grandmothers are even crazier. When we had our first grandchild, I looked at the woman, formerly my wife, and said, who are you and what did you do to my wife? Because she went bonsai crazy. I mean, it's, it's just you, you, do, you, you get this sense of love. You didn't know what was capable in you. And they're good for nothing. They don't do anything utilitarian. You feed them and you clean up the mess. I mean, that's all they're for. And yet, you would absolutely give everything you have for them. When our firstborn held my little finger in the nursery, 
I pulled out my wallet, my checkbook. I gave her all my credit cards, and she gladly accepted them. So, parenting is a love that, that it's just hard to explain, right? And, of course, then you get attached to them, and they leave you. You know, just stomp on your heart. Call occasionally, you know. But that's another. I'm not bitter. The, the Lord says, if, 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 if you love that way, you really think God doesn't love that way? Notice how the foundation of prayer is always the character of God. If we don't immerse ourselves in an understanding of the character of God, then our prayers will always be faulty. But the more we come to understand the riches of his love, the beauty of his character, the perfection of who he is, the simplicity of his attributes, the more we understand the absolute power that he has over all things, the more we, we get a sense of the grandeur of our God, then prayer makes so much sense. And Jesus says, you love. You think God doesn't love? The promise is that when we ask, God will respond with the absolute overwhelming love of a parent. So what's the problem? The problem is all those times he said no. The, the problem, let's be honest, most of us when asked can, can look at things in our life where God said no, where there were crickets after amen, right? Turn to 2 Corinthians 12. We're going to look at the two great unanswered prayers in the New Testament. The two great unanswered prayers in the New Testament. One unanswered for the Apostle Paul, the giant of the first century church, the human being that, humanly speaking, is responsible for the expansion of Christianity throughout the Western world. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's an ironic passage. I don't have have time to have fun with this, but notice he says, I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go to the visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Yeah, we don't know everything about that. But whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things that no one is permitted to tell. And I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast against about myself except for about my weaknesses. The irony is all the non-boasting and boasting that's feeding through this. We don't know if Paul is speaking of himself or someone else. There's strong argument can be made either way. Verse 6, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. That's why we think it may have been him because he said, I had these great revelations and I could boast about them. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. The Apostle Paul begged God. When he says three times I prayed, trust me, I don't think that means three times he said, now I'll lay me down to sleep and Lord take away the thorn and good night. That's not the way they prayed. I think this is three seasons of prayer. Three intense times in his life when he said, Lord, take away this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. Uh, Some people believe it was eyesight because he speaks in some of his epistles about having to write with such big letters. Some people believe it was depression, which fits the way he describes it, that that drag of the human heart by the sorrow and, and, and lack of hope that can be depression. Some people believe it was an appearance issue because he, he speaks of not being impressive. Whatever it was, the greatest apostle, with the possible exception of Peter, three times prayed earnestly before God, God, if it's any way, is there any way you can take from me this thorn in the flesh? And God said no. The great thing is Paul tells us why. Paul says, because I needed to be told no. Because Paul struggled with pride. And and he said, it would be too easy for me to have been conceited if I wasn't embarrassed by my thorn in the flesh. This weakness that, that reminded me daily of my need for him, that reminded me all the time that I'm just like everybody else that reminded me that it is only God's grace that uses me. Sometimes God says no because he wants to do something in us. He he has a, a, a laser beam look at an issue in our life that can be adjusted by him telling no. Sometimes what we ask for would be the very worst thing that could happen to us. But he knows better. Paul said, that's who I am. And this great apostle, this this founder of the church, this, this man who wrote so much of the New Testament said, guys, my weakness would have won and my pride. So God chose to use my true weakness and my failing to exalt God. Sometimes God says no because it's not what's best for us. But even more shocking, God said no to Jesus in his prayer. You may never have thought of this before, but it really is what happened. Matthew chapter, oh, let me read This is just so good. If you never read the message, Gene Peterson just went to be with the Lord, one of the great, great men of the faith and pastors of our last several decades, and he was great before Bono interviewed him. Um, It's because you're thinking, 
Bono, I know. Who's this Gene Peterson? He's the guy that did the message. Let me read to you his translation of 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Because of the extravagance of these revelations, and so I wouldn't get a big head, I was given the gift of a handicap to keep me in constant touch with my limitations. Satan's angel did his best to get me down. What he in fact did was push me to my knees. No danger then of walking around high and mighty. At first, I didn't think of it as a gift, and I begged God to remove it. Three times, times I did that, and then he told me, my grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. Once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. It was a case of Christ's strength moving in on my weaknesses, and now I take limitations in stride and with good cheer, these limitations that cut me down to size, abuse, accidents, opposition, bad breaks. I just let Christ take over, and I see that the weaker I get, the stronger I become. Matthew 26. This is Jesus' prayer at Gethsemane, beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus went to his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. By the way, part of what the incarnation, the, the reality that Jesus is fully God and fully man, in his fullness of his humanity, he hurt. He was tempted in the same way we are. Way we, are. we love to minimize his obedience by saying, yeah, but he was God. It was no problem for him. That is ridiculous. He wept real tears. He struggled with fear. He knew what it was to face horrible things. You sit and, and read about the prayer at Gethsemane and you get just a glimpse of his humanity. Sit here and while I go and pray, and he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and he began to be sorrowful and troubled and he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow even to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. It's always great to have a crisis of faith and have your friends there for you, right? Couldn't you men... Keep watch with me for an hour, he asked. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Went away a second time and prayed, My father, it is possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it. May your will be done. He came back and found him sleeping, and the soldiers appeared. Father told Jesus no. Jesus is literally praying, Lord, if there is any other way to accomplish redemption, bring about forgiveness. If there's any plan B, can we do that? And the Father said, 
Jesus. Because sometimes he tells us no, not for what it's going to do for us, but because of how it fits into his plan. Jesus didn't need to be told no to make him a better person. Jesus' personhood was already perfect. Jesus was told no because in God's amazing plan, Jesus had to be told no. And I'm sorry, the light came on all at once, and it was just kind of like, yes, Lord. Um, the, um, because it was God's plan. And, and Jesus knew the excruciating physical and, and spiritual death he was about to encounter. And so because he was fully human, he literally had a broken heart. And he expressed that to the Father so that we would see the reality of his humanity. We would see that even the Son of God gets told no when it's the perfect plan of God. Yeah, I was a math guy in college, so work with me here a second. Some of you are already turning me off. Ever heard of a matrix in math? You know, where there are two different axes. And think about all of the people that pray to the Father every day. A billion? I don't know. That's your horizontal axis. And think about all the things they pray about. A tree, that's your vertical axis. And every time God answers a single prayer of a single person, that has implications in all of the rest of that matrix. What is that, a tree in factorial? That'll burn out your calculator. The, the reality is the, 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 we think of God as just, it's just you and me, Lord, and it is. But the reality is that when that drop hits the pond, the, 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 the circle goes out and touches every other person. The complexity of how he answers my request so perfectly that that answer touches my kids and my wife and you and everybody I meet in exactly the perfect way according to his perfect will. Can you grasp how, how complex that is? Jesus was relatively singular. He prayed, don't make me die this way. And the result was just the salvation of a few trillion people. But in the complexity of our prayers to God, he, he takes every little request we have, and as he answers it, it ripples out into all the other lives in which we, because he's got a plan for everything. And sometimes he says no to me because the worst thing he can do is give me what I want. But sometimes he says no to me because he's got a big agenda going and I'm just a little tiny part of it and it'll work out for me just like it works out for all of you. So the promise is that if we ask, he will respond as a loving father. The problem is that he sometimes says no because we need it or because his plan needs it. The good news is there's a provision I got three Ps. I'm really excited. Turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 8. 
There's provision in our prayer. There's provision in our prayer. Verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Because when we pray, we're weak. We don't know what we ought to pray. But for the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. We know that all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Why, why do we know Romans eight twenty eight is true? Because the Spirit takes our prayers and cleans them up. and translates them in language we can't even understand so that the will of God is expressed in our lives perfectly. Sometimes my prayers are a babbling mess. But the Spirit's always translating them. Not only my words, but my very heart and need and yearning. We, we have the provision of the Spirit in our prayer life so that when we go to Him and make requests, He, he takes our simple requests and puts them through the filter of His perfect wisdom and will and love. Isn't that crazy? The third person of the Trinity is active in making my prayers a reality before the Father. Turn to James. We have the Spirit, but it's still us. James chapter 1 gives the second great provision for our prayer life. Beginning with verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. You know, we're going to pass over that joy and trials thing for another Sunday. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking of anything. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you shall ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must ask and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea blown and raised by the wind. Verse 16, don't be deceived, dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. When I pray, the Holy Spirit interprets my prayers in a language that we cannot even understand. And when I pray, he joins me by giving wisdom so that not only in my prayers, but in my time afterwards, I can live more consistently with His perfect will. Why does God want us to ask Him? He's our Daddy. He's our Father. And we love our children and are loved by our parents imperfectly and insufficiently and weakly compared to the way he loves us. Sometimes he says no, but it's, it's, 
it's always for our good and for his perfect purposes, many of which we cannot see. Rather than become disheartened, he provides his spirit and gives us wisdom so that we can take our great needs to him. See, we don't, we don't want to go to him with all our requests, not because we don't want to bother him, but because we really don't want to get him involved. You know what I'm saying? Okay, let's be honest, man. You ever not ask your wife's opinion because you really don't want it? Because if you ask it, she'll give it, and then you've got this whole conundrum, which is a long word for you're in trouble. In other words, we often don't ask people because, because we don't want them involved. But for the believer, because of what we know about his love, what we know about his power, what do we know about his care, all of this involvement is good, whether we see it today or not. Pray with me. Father, we confess that we are people of little faith, and we confess that we struggle to trust and therefore to pray. Lord, cause us to trust that you really do love us and that you really will work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.